Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's Cato Institute Capitol Hill briefing. I'm Kurt Couchman. I'm the manager of government affairs at the Cato Institute. Um, before we get started with today's program, I want to bring your attention to the Cato Handbook for Policymakers. We just released it earlier this month, and it's a uh, comprehensive guide to what Cato scholars think should be done about all variety of policies that Capitol Hill deals with, uh, which includes, of course, foreign policy, economic issues, civil liberties, um, energy policy, and right on down the list. Uh, relevant to today's conversation, we actually have five chapters devoted to healthcare. So um, if you have a greater interest in the topic at hand than in the free food, then uh, I definitely encourage you to check that out. Um, our speaker today is Arnold Kling. He's a, a Cato adjunct scholar. Um, he's really more of an independent scholar, kind of does uh, a lot of independent projects that um, all pretty much have to do with economics, but lots of different areas within that. Uh, in 1975, he worked for the Congressional Budget Office, uh, then went on to uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology to obtain his Ph.D. in economics. From 1980 to 1986, he was an economist at the Board of Governors for the Federal Reserve Bank. From 1986 to 1994, he was a senior economist at Freddie Mac, so based on those two pieces, uh, you can imagine he has an extraordinary amount of experience and knowledge about the banking and housing sectors, and uh, he's actually been speaking and writing quite a bit about that recently. Uh, from 1994 to 1999, he uh, started and managed com, which was one of the first commercial sites on the web, and uh, he ultimately sold it in 1999 to homestore.com. And uh, he also is a... Well, with uh, George Mason professor Brian Kaplan, he co-edits uh, the blog EconLog, and that, of course, is about economic issues as well. He's the author of several books, including uh, Crisis of Abundance, Rethinking How We Pay for Healthcare, and um, the topic that kind of spawned today's uh, event um, is a paper, a briefing paper that we should have had outside for you, um, Does the Doctor Need a Boss?, and that kind of came out of a uh, more intimate and unfortunately very unpleasant look at our uh, dysfunctional healthcare system that Dr. Kling uh, had to deal with. So um, I don't want to give too much away, but let me turn it over to Dr. Kling. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm looking for uh, an informal sort of presentation, and uh, you know, I, I I teach in a class, and I'm looking for some class participation starting very early. So, you know, be nervous or be excited, whatever. The, however, that uh, is, the mic on? is the mic on. Okay, I have to. All right. Okay. All right. There we go. Um, Okay, I, I think it's it'll probably help in a lot of ways to distinguish ahead of time the my role as a policy recommender or policy analyst and my role as an amateur management consultant. Um, as a policy analyst, I would like the most radical idea ever in healthcare, which is a free market healthcare system. I mean, I think you know, I'm actually supposed to be debating somebody in a couple of months on sort of single-payer versus consumer-oriented health care. 
And my line is that, you know, the other guy is the conservative over here because they want single payer, which we're we pretty much are most of the way there now. You know, we, we and we certainly are much farther away from a consumer uh, consumer paid health care than we are from single payer. So the most radical idea out there is actual free market health care with consumers paying on average 50% out of pocket. I think that's what I put in my, in my book when, it, when I sort of <coughs> set up a, a, a fantasy system of how, how health care could be paid for that sort of about 50% out of pocket, uh, a smaller percentage government, and, uh, and then the rest paid for by something that would be genuine health insurance. The other part of radical deregulation would be to get rid of all uh, practice regulation. So, you know, the a licensed doctor can do no more or no less than a hack. Uh, that it would that the regulatory system would be uh, more of a you know consumer beware type of system. Um, hope, you know that would put a lot of pressure on consumers to obtain more information that would make information about different doctors and different hospitals much more valuable. I think it would be more valuable now, um, but it would be more clearly valuable. And so people would rely on uh, various forms of rating systems uh, for you know, how they get their care. Anyway, it's a, it's a very radical system isn't the main topic today, although it's it's in the background. Um, so that's the policy thing, and the management consulting thing is, uh, to put it in most provocative terms, to uh, take away some autonomy from doctors and put them in a more corporate environment. Wow, uh, that's another radical idea, but that is not a policy idea because. As a policy person, I don't want to dictate how the market solves the health care problem. So if, it, if we had radical free market health care and what emerged was a system in which doctors have as much autonomy as they have today or even more autonomy than they have today, so be it. My management consulting view is wrong. The markets win. The markets say that doctors should have more autonomy. If... <clears throat> On the other hand, in a free market system, what emerges is uh, at least some doctors working in a corporate environment, then so be it. That's, that's the market choice. So there's the policy analyst who just wants to let the markets try whatever they want to try and see what emerges as the most popular alternative. And then there's the management consultant, the amateur management consultant, who thinks that uh, sort of if, if you gave me uh, a portion of a healthcare system to sort of work on in the supply side, you know, a bunch of doctors to organize or hospitals, uh, I would actually try to use some corporate management techniques and perhaps take away doc doctors' autonomy. But then, so again, trying to separate the, the amateur management consultant from the policy person. So 
Uh, I'd be curious if anyone came in here with any strongly held beliefs about doctor autonomy, pro or con. Do we have anybody who came in here saying, boy, this, this idea of that doctors should have a boss is crazy or, uh, or the opposite? Do, we, do I have to call on people who haven't raised their hands? <laughs> the, uh, go ahead. Okay, why is... Okay, uh, you want to explain uh, your, your I, arguments I'm for that? I'm familiar with the Kaiser Permanente model, mm -hmm. where the doctors are all paid a salary, and they're based, they, have, they have performance reviews and bonuses based off their performance, not necessarily uh, um, individual performance, but how the, the clinic that they're in or the, the uh, facility that they're in performs in general. I know it radically reduces their cost, and also they've already, already have a full system of electronic medical records down to the PDA level, so my doctor can see an x-ray given by another doctor literally on his PDA anywhere in the facility in a closed system. So I know they have a, a good control over their cost, which much of the cost, as you point out, is just literally blown away. So they have good control of cost, so they provide really high-quality care for less cost. And, and I don't, at a personal level, I don't mind it because there's a big corporation making that money. That's fine with me. I, I like that. And number two is the doctors do have a much better quality of life. Uh, I'm familiar with several of them. Okay, so in case the camera doesn't pick up or the, the microphone doesn't pick up all the comments, I'll, I'll just briefly summarize. So somebody who's in favor of having the doctor, having a boss, uh, saying that you, first of all, in a corporate environment, you have performance reviews and the, there can be a focus on quality and a focus on team quality, not just individual quality, that the doctors can enjoy a better quality of life. They don't have to spend the time worrying about management. They can actually be doctors. And I would also assume that they can work on a, you know, on a, you know, more normal schedule, a normal work schedule. They're not just on call, or if they they want to be, they can probably choose what type of lifestyle they have they want. And um, the other thing is that in something like Kaiser Permanente, you can have uh, electronic medical records and use them. It's very hard when you have a, a super fragmented system. Uh, we, uh, for a small individual doctor's office to define all the requirements and terminology and stuff you need to develop a computer system. So electronic medical records, you know, one of my lines on electronic medical records, I'm very skeptical about the government coming in and creating electronic medical record system. Uh, and that's in part because of my, my own corporate background uh, I have this line that every business gets the computer system it deserves. And so uh, healthcare has a lousy computer system, and it deserves a lousy computer system because the healthcare system itself is so fragmented. When the, when the business process is as fragmented as it is, with just you know, individual practitioners really defining their way of doing things in their own way, um, you know, a doc, you know, when a doctor writes down something on a chart, he's not thinking, you know, how can I write this down in a standardized way? He's thinking, how can I write this down so I'll be able to, to understand what I wrote when I wrote it? So there's no business standardization. If there's no business standardization, you really can't benefit very much from computerization. I think the attempt to computerize uh, this fragmented system is just going to you know, run into a you know, real problems. It's sort of like 
you know, trying to you're trying to invade Russia and just finding yourself sort of knee deep in snow and mud, and you know, you never, without even ever making contact with the enemy, you, you're defeated. And I think I think that that we could have the same type of challenge trying to do electronic medical records in a fragmented system. Uh, anyone want to speak up for doctor autonomy? Any any doctors in the house? I I, I yeah okay, sure. Okay. Right. <coughs> so that comment was that uh, you can't just talk about autonomy in general without talking about the specific situation. Um, you know, somebody might be seeing um, you know the t- the type of per- you know some type of specialties like I would guess you know dermatology probably doesn't have too many emergencies and you can sort of you know operate you know act on your own, somebody in sort of obstetrics or in pediatrics, you know, might get lots of emergencies, so they naturally need other people to cover for them. That requires more communication and interaction. And then um, somebody who's doing surgery has to be accountable to peers and to others over whether they can do new procedures, whether they're um, 
whether they're doing things uh, well or not, and so on. Um, any other comments on autonomy versus having a boss as a generic before, generic thing? Yeah, sure. Okay, so um, the point that he made is that we're going to need more coordination of care, and that coordination can take place maybe in different avenues that are in between a corporate model and a pure sort of uh, loan physician model or small practice model, and that, that, that's certainly a possibility. Um, all right, let me, let me just talk about where I came from in my thinking, and I'll, it's really... Two experiences, one that uh, Kurt alluded to, sort of a personal experience uh, last year right around this time uh, with my father's care, and then the other aspect of my personal experience is that I have lived in a corporate life with with regular performance reviews and uh, all of the nonsense or BS that goes with being in corporation, but that you learn to understand after a while why it's necessary. Um, so let me, uh, I'll, I'll talk about the experience with my father first. Um, so last January, okay, last, a year ago, December, so December of 07, he was diagnosed, uh, with esophageal cancer, which is an unforgiving cancer, especially at the stage he was diagnosed at. So there was no good prospects at that point. Um, but he was you know, sort of mobile, active, and so on. He um, started having some problems with with his with pain in his lower leg, probably due to bad circulation and, and probably some kind of cellulitis or something. Uh, went to get an X-ray, fell down on the way to the X-ray, uh, broke his hip. Um, from that point on, never made it out of the hospital. Uh, the he spent two weeks. I counted eight different hospital units over those two weeks. Um, there was obviously not a whole lot of continuity of care as he got shuttled from unit to unit. Um, they took care of some things. They did not take care of some other things, and some things got worse. In particular, he developed infected bed sores, which is something I think that happens quite frequently in hospitals, but something that no one unit really could take responsibility for. Um, and, you know, so here he was, late stage in life, multiple problems. He had, you know, long history of cardiac problems, circulation problems, and, of course, the esophageal cancer in the background. Um, the And a broken hip that had, you know, that, that was actually in some ways the, the easiest thing to take care of. That was just putting a pin in. 
Um, but it was a pretty awful experience watching the sort of the infected bed sores kind of take over and kind of be, you know, a constant source of pain. Um, and I think, in a way, the, the proximate cause of his death. Um, and just in general, I didn't, I didn't get a very good feeling about this experience, um, that it was... Uh, you could see the lack of coordination, the lack of any overall plan, uh, sort of each unit worrying primarily about what it was supposed to wor- worry about. So when he was in the, uh, you know, he was in a cardio unit for a while because they decided since he had a history of heart problems, that's where he should go right after the surgery. Um, then he's in a rehab unit because they think he should be rehabbing his broken hip and he, you know each one is kind of focused on its on its own primary issue and no one is focused for instance on trying to prevent the bed sores um and so on so that was that was kind of a searing experience for me personally uh to see that and to see just get this general sense of there was no plan there was no one person you could even talk to about his about the overall plan, it was just like, you know, they each unit was going to manage the immediate problem, and then you know other problems they they might or might not try to deal with. And it turns out that probably eighty percent of all of our healthcare expenses go to patients like that. Not necessarily people in the late stage of life, that's a smaller percentage, but people who have multiple problems, you know, people who are di- have diabetes or so on, who have chronic illnesses. So they're a small minority of the patients, but they are a large amount of the medical expenditures. They are people who cannot be handled just by one doctor, you know, not, not just a primary care doctor or not just an orthopedist but who require sort of multiple uh, types of medical help. And that, in turn, requires coordination. And my sense is that this coordination does not necessarily take place spontaneously and that it actually needs a coordinator, uh, somebody who, who does coordinate things. And so that's that's my sense of which I really do think there needs to be some kind of boss. I use the term project manager just because I come, you know, might come at it again from a, a business background. Uh, somebody whose job it is to say, okay, well, these are now these are the priorities. These are the things that must not slip through the cracks, even as we're watching X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C must not slip through the cracks. Um, somebody who can talk to the patient and the family about what to expect and about what type of choices can be made and what the implications of those choices are. Because I feel, looking back on it, I made some choices uh, on my father's behalf that I wouldn't make if I had to do it over again. But there was just, uh, it was the information that you get is sort of uh, piecemeal you're not getting the whole picture from anybody. Uh, so that, uh, that was another aspect of not, sort of not having uh, you know, a f- some formal project manager, somebody who's fully in charge, who knows, you know, for, I'm going to have 
responsibility for this patient from day one till the person leaves the hospital. There, you know, instead we had you know eight different units in two weeks, and so there was no one person that you could talk to to even plan for you know three or four days from now. Um, so it, again, it's, it was a very unsatisfying experience, uh, very disturbing experience, and I think that <coughs> there is because there are so many patients who require sort of who have multiple things wrong with them. Uh, that I think it's a pretty widespread problem. And I think that there's probably a lot more of medicine that needs to be, that's going to require team coordination going forward um, and perhaps less medicine that's going to, where, where one person is going to be able to uh, act completely independently of other doctors. So that's, uh, so that's kind of that, that, that at, sort of personal experience that motivates this. The other personal experience is uh, I have, did, did work in corporate life. Uh, and, you know, what, at Freddie Mac, I came in as an economist. And uh, you know, a lot of people who do economics and finance can do computer programming. And so I could do computer programming. Other people who worked for me could do computer programming. And when we wanted to, you know, build some fancy model to simulate how a mortgage might perform, uh, we could do it, you know, just on our own, independently, really quickly. And then when we would go to the information technology people and say, can we implement a new mortgage product? And it sounded like, oh, you know, take about ten lines of code to do it in, in our minds. They would say, "Well, it's going to take you know four people and uh, two years." What's going on here? And uh, you know, I, I, so I became very hostile to these people. Um, and gradually, over time, learned sort of what you know what some of their language was about of project management and requirements analysis and data modeling and so on. I, I learned some of that stuff and and lost some of my skepticism, but I really lost it when I when I had this entrepreneurial venture, Home Fair, and it started to take off and I sort of became was you know, basically in charge of our I was in effect the chief technology officer and I f and uh people started asking for things, uh changes and I th I started going mentally well that's two people two years I mean I, I started thinking along those lines boy we really need to um, be careful about making that change because it's going to impact all these other systems that we have and so we need to sort out the requirements and set priorities and, and actually we constructed a data model I, I thought you know when I was at Freddie Mac I thought the a data model was the most bureaucratic arcane idea you could ever have and then when I was actually starting to implement a system that was becoming more complex I said boy we need a data model to get control of this so uh, my joke was that I've spent so many years berating information technology bureaucrats that it's karma I've come back as one um, and the lesson is that there actually is some method in the madness of bureaucracy uh, that when you're when you're one person writing a computer program, 
with no impact on anybody else, you can just code like crazy. And if it works, it's fine, and you can do it really quickly, and it's great. When you're writing something that has an impact on what somebody else's system has, so that your um, your sort of marketing support system has to somehow make it into the accounting system, uh, it's a completely different ball game, and it requires management, it requires bureaucracy, it requires coordination, and it's just a different way of doing things. I guess for for people who are not computer programmers, uh, maybe a better analogy would be like a construction project. If somebody's if you're trying to build a deck on your house, you can probably get a lone craftsman to come in and do it, or just a couple of people without any kind of formal coordination. Two or three people can come in, build a deck on your house. Uh, if you're trying to build a highway clover leaf or a skyscraper, the lone craftsman model doesn't work. You all of a sudden you do need project management to make sure that all the various people involved in that project are going to uh, work at the right time, that when when one of them does something that raises an issue with another one, that there will be coordination. And so that's that's my sense, this is the amateur management consultant, of what has what is needed for these complex patients like my father in healthcare. That is uh, it's the method of of operating as a lone craftsman uh, just doesn't work, and you need and, and you can't even rely just on informal coordination. I think the typical doctor would say, "Okay, coordination, no problem. I'll I'll, I'll call the dermatologist. I'll call the uh, you know the cardiologist, and we'll and we'll talk." Um, but when things get really complex, that informal coordination actually is not sufficient. You need actual formal coordination, somebody who's making sure that nothing falls through the cracks, somebody who makes sure that every issue gets raised and resolved on schedule, uh, somebody who has a who maintains a plan and who and who, as new circumstances come up, modifies the plan. And so everyone can see the plan, they can see the variations against the plan, and so on. Um, you know, I call that project management. And again, my, uh, you know, my experience in, in corporate life made me appreciate, yes, there are situations where when, uh, when you have skilled people whose actions are going to affect other people's actions, you can't just ha rely on autonomy or uh, informal coordination. You actually need formal project management. Another thing that I feel I took away from corporate life is uh, the notion of process control or quality management. I, I think this is still something that's popular in business. It was a huge fad in the late 80s and, and 1990s. Um, the uh, the big guru was a uh, very elderly gentleman named W. Edwards Deming, who uh, was a prophet without honor in the United States for a while and took it, his views to Japan. They took hold in Japan, and then they finally came back here. And his views were that uh, you you to build in quality, 
you have to build in quality into your process. You, his line was, you can't inspect in quality. If you wait till a car comes off the assembly line and then reject a bad car, accept a car that has acceptable quality, you won't have effective quality techniques. You need a process that from the very beginning is focused on quality. So you want to have, you want to look at the assembly line and see where all the points are where people could fail to uh, put something together properly. You want to go all the way back to the design of the car and look for the design elements that are inherently problematic. So you want to simplify the design in such a way that you'll get quality. Um, for something like healthcare, I think that means paying attention to the process. To what, you know, are we... First, one of Deming's points is that you have to have a consistent process before you can evaluate it. If people are just doing different things every time, you don't have a process. You can't take meaningful statistics about it. You can't uh, take meaningful steps to improve it. You have to have a consistent process and then once you have it consistent, then you can say, all right, well, suppose we vary it in a certain way, and then you can say how that particular variation affects the quality. And so in a medical field, that would mean if you were somebody like Kaiser Permanente or a, you know, some other corporate provider, that you would have a set of standard procedures that get followed with every patient of a certain type. And you would expect your doctors or all your employees to follow those standard procedures. And the, um, the only way that you would allow variation of those procedures would be for a doctor to, or, or whoever to say, I specifically think we need to make an exception in this case. Here's why. Here's, and here's what I think um, the outcome will be if we follow this exceptional process, and they would be, be accountable for getting a better result uh, if they undertake that exception. So the corporate process would standardize procedures, and I think that that would allow you, that gives you a baseline against which to measure quality. You know, there's a huge... Uh, buzzword of quality of healthcare in uh, in the healthcare policy area, but what I th I think has to happen first before you can actually have any kind of uh, program to improve quality is you have to know what your current process is and how it works. If you don't know what your current process is and how it works. You know, I'm, I'm just spouting the, the standard Deming view that uh, if you don't know what your process is and how it works, you can't possibly know how to improve it. You're just guessing. The, t the term that Deming used was tampering. That is, if you're just guessing at how to improve the process, you're just tampering. So <clears throat> another advantage of doctors having a boss is that they would be given a standard set of procedures, and you could then see how those procedures affect outcomes, establish a baseline, 
And then if somebody suggests, uh, well, here's a different procedure that I think would either lower costs or produce better outcomes, then you can measure that procedure against a baseline, and you're actually systematically improving the process as opposed to simply randomly tampering with the process. Uh, let me make one more case for one more point on, on corporate uh, health care, and that is the feedback system for doctors. You mentioned <coughs> performance reviews. Um, performance review systems are interesting. I hope they work. I think sometimes they, they work and sometimes they don't. But in theory, a performance review system is a powerful way to provide feedback to an employee about what you want them to do and how you want them to improve. Um, and you know, if you think about a doctor in the absence of a performance review system, you know, where, where are they getting their direction? In a purely financial sense, they're getting their direction from an insurance company. The insurance company says, check, out the, check this box properly and you get paid. Fail to check this prop box properly and you won't get paid. And that's, that's where the doctor gets the direction under the current system. What, and, you know, it could be Medicare, it could be insurance company or whatever. I don't think that's a very powerful feedback mechanism. You know, in management in general, professionals, you know, are evaluated by people who are observing them on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, you, there are some performance review systems, there are things called 360-degree feedback, where you are evaluated by your peers, by your superiors, and by your subordinates. So, but in any case, any peer review system is done by somebody who's following you closely. In an insurance check the box and get paid by the insurance company system, you're, you're not being evaluated that way. And where the proposals for government quality, you know, pay for performance are headed is, again, very remote evaluation. You know, you, if you check the box that says, you know, I gave the beta blockers, you get more points than if you rushed to do heart surgery. Uh, but that's still a remote system. It is not, you're not being evaluated by somebody who's on the, on the scene looking at what, what you're doing. I think there's tremendous potential in the medical profession for on-the-scene evaluations of performance and to, be, to give doctors feedback about what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong and to y use that to, you know, to affect their incentives. But if, if you go the other direction of, of having a paper for performance via remote control by somebody seeing whether you checked a box or by some crude measure of patient outcomes, I think that's just a system that you're just going to have be gamed and not, not lead to quality. Uh, so I, I think I want to try to wrap up to leave time for more questions and comments. I just want to, um, again, distinguish the policy view from the amateur management consultant view. The, my policy view is let's actually try radical free market health care and see what emerges. And if what emerges is 
the autonomous doctor model, so be it. If what emerges is a more corporate model, so be it. Uh, the management consultant thinks that a, uh, a corporate model could emerge for the most expensive, complex patients because they do require coordination. There, um, there is something to be said for systematic processes and for strong management, which in turn I think could incorporate electronic me medical records effectively if it, w if it was less fragmented. Uh, for performance evaluation done by people who are professionals uh, observing the person on a day-to-day -day basis as opposed to um, you know, basically no, you know, as opposed to having doctors be compensated based on th their ability to fill out or the, their, their admin's ability to fill out check boxes properly for the insurance companies. Right, so I think I want to wrap it up there and take comments, arguments, questions. Yeah. Why not provide or evaluate doctors on patient outcomes? Okay, why not evaluate doctors on patient outcomes? I, I imagine that if you had a system like that in place, doctors would select patients on the basis of their likeliness of having good outcomes. So if you measure outcomes very crudely, like life or death, they'll, or they'll just pick the most well patients. If you use a more sophisticated measure of uh, outcomes relative to their diagnosis, they'll choose the patients who they think have the best chance of c coming out well in the diagnosis, which will probably be you know, sort of in part upper-income patients because I think upper-income, you know, a lot of your outcome depends on how well you follow the medical regimen, and upper-income patients are more likely to follow the advice and take their medicine on time and so on. And so that kind of a system, I think, would probably be pretty rough on poor people because the doctors would, would be trying to do everything in their power to shove them out of the way because they'll, they'll ruin their outcome measures. I just don't think there's any, generically, I don't think there's any remote control measure that you can use and pay for performance. Again, my corporate experience is you have to tinker with your compensation system every couple of years because what if if you don't, the employees learn how to game it. It it, it it's. Employee compensation is a game in which management is trying to get the most change in behavior for the least expense. And the employee is try has the opposite goal. They want to have the least change in behavior and get the most reward out of it. So if you leave any system in place long enough, the employees are going to learn how to game it. Um, but uh, you know, with something like government trying to implement it, the gaming takes place right away and then you can't get rid of it. I think the British, a few years ago, implemented a pay-for-performance system and immediately had like a 14% increase in doctor pay, and they said there was nothing like that increase in terms of quality, that um, the doctors just very quickly figured out how to fill out the forms to show that they were uh, performing properly. They, they used the exception reports very cleverly. They were, they, they were allowed to... to designate certain patients as exceptions, and uh, it's just very hard to do that under remote control. I think it's it's one of the hardest things to do 
in management, when you when you're right there managing people, is to is to get your compensation incentives right. And and the more remote you are, and the more, and the more slowly you you have to change those processes, the the less effective they are. Yeah. So just to, to repeat his point, that if you had a, a free market health care, the, the picture is that, pe- that and we, we already see some of that today, is that people will choose based on the reputation of the provider, and that would mean that the corporate providers with the best reputations will get the most business. And you, know, you can see how that process would work out. I mean, it's, just, it's the way it works out in, in any business when, when people see that the best uh, that the best processes are winning, they the people with the inferior processes say, well, we either have to change uh, or something, um, and 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 you so you it's it, the process it, that competitive process works to eliminate the inferior providers and uh, bring the superior ones to the floor. Yeah. Okay, so is there controversy among libertarians about it? I think probably. I mean, there's typically controversy among libertarians among anything. Um, What I tried to make clear with my policy versus management consultant thing is I don't want to impose a corporate uh, approach on people. I think you will... You know, there there are plenty of people on the left who will say that we need coordinated care, we need you know pay for performance, we need all these these things, uh, and the way we need to do it is we need government to impose it. Uh, somehow, government needs to force it, and that's where I back off. And um, you know, I guess my libertarian view is let's see what emerges, and if 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 my amateur management consultant vision is wrong, the market doesn't doesn't support it, so be it. Yeah. In terms of enhancing quality, I think the tort system, I'd say to first approximation, I would say it's irrelevant, um, that it's a very, it seems like, you know, it's a classic case in Deming terms of trying to build in quality at the very last point in the process. You know, the, the damage has already been done, and 
And then on top of that, it's sort of random whether the uh, the you know the I there I'm sure there are plenty of cases where the doctor is not blameworthy and has to pay a settlement, and where the doctor is blameworthy and never has to pay a settlement, or the patient never sues. So I I think of it as just a really absolutely ineffective quality control mechanism. Uh, the better quality control mechanism would be to design procedures up front that prevent doctors from making mistakes. Uh, and, you know, there certainly are, are better ways of, of, of organizing and training and checking on, on people. Uh, so designing a process is up front that try to eliminate mistakes and then evaluating doc- doctors by peers um, because I think the way it stands now, I think there are a lot of doctors who, if they had a another professional looking over their shoulder, would be, like, kicked out of the profession right today. And they're allowed to practice just because that we just – we don't have a, a, a culture or a, or a business process that says you have to meet certain standards or you have to uh, demonstrate – competence in front of your peers in order to stay in business. We just don't have that process. Uh, so there, there certainly could be much better processes than the, than the tort system for instilling quality. And I think, again, as my management consultant view, I, I think part of that process could be a corporate environment where people are evaluated by people who are observing them every day in how they conduct themselves. Uh, over here. Okay, so that, that that could be that's so that's one argument against a corporate model is that the doctor-patient relationship is what's important. Um, there are challenges to making that work. First of all, uh, you know, in something like my father's case, there was no doctor-patient relationship. There couldn't be. I mean, he's got uh, he's seen by two, you know, eight different units in two weeks. Um, I th- believe that the typical general practitioner has a roster of patients that's around 2,000. Uh, so I don't think they know that many of them that well. I mean, we all want to believe that our, do- our doctor is a heroic personal savior, but you know, in many cases, it's not really uh, that. That just isn't the way it works. Um, so I, um, there. There, you know, there's a variety of things. You know, I, I, I don't feel like to get a prescription for strep throat that I need a personal relationship with a physician. I can walk into any clinic and get that get that strep test and, and get that prescription. Um, f- for something else, uh, sure, it would be it would make a difference. Yeah. Did, um, okay. Go ahead. Just what you were describing. 
Yeah. I, so the point is that you know someone like a project manager would actually relate primarily to the patient as opposed to think in terms of well this is my specialty this is you know I'll I'll fix this little thing um and and, the, and f- so there would be that kind of relationship that that is possible yeah Okay, so he's asking sort of how how does cost figure in, into this? Um, I guess that's a half-hour question. I don't feel like I have half an hour to give it, so let me see what I would say in, in a minute. Um, the I think if we're going to have quality health care in this country, we have to give consumers the means, the motive, and the opportunity to select better care. And so for the means, I actually think we do need comparative effectiveness studies and just lots more information about what's working and what's not. Um, the opportunity means that they have to actually be making the choices uh, and you know, ma- being able to make meaningful choices. And the motive is putting more of the uh, cost burden on the consumer, uh, not for the catastrophic losses, but for a lot of the, the less than catastrophic. Uh, because I think if they're not motivated to choose, you know, th- to choose cost-effective care, then, then that's not what you're going to get. Can I do one more? Let's see, is there one more? Um,
so much that they got over blistering and vitamin C. They got over those clothes. It was well, it was difficult to never endure at the same time. Okay. So you so uh, you found you found a more more effective way of of treating these and and maybe in a uh, I would hope in a, in a market system that 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 what you would develop a uh, a franchise that would uh, take over the world and uh, and we would have more cost effective healthcare. Okay. Well, it does appear that we're out of time, so uh, please join me in thanking Dr. Clinton for his comments today.